0: Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys.
1: Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations.
0: Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Douglas Murray, who has been described as one of the most important public intellectuals today. We've had some incredible talent on this show this season, including several Pulitzer Prize winners. No one is more brilliant than Douglas Murray. Among other books, he's the author of The Madness of Crowds, which was a huge bestseller, and most recently, The War on the West. Even his critics allow that, quote, Murray has made a valuable contribution to the battle of ideas. And we're lucky to have him here with us today. Douglas, welcome.
2: Great to be with you. What a pleasure.
0: So we have been corresponding about the cocktail choice today, and you offered three favorites— Mm. And on your list was my personal favorite. So we're going with that today, the the rye Manhattan.
2: Absolutely. And it has to be rye.
0: Yeah, it's a little... bourbon sometimes a little too sweet, right? Exactly.
2: Exactly. I used to have no taste for bourbon in general um, until I discovered it can be a useful mixer for certain drinks. An old-fashioned, but not for Manhattan. I think for Manhattan, it has to be rye. So if you go straight, would it be... You're more of a scotch drinker? Yes, um, although... I have a kind of limit. I used to drink good scotch, and now I don't particularly care. Um, Any scotch will do. <laughs> my, late friend, my late friend Christopher Hitchens used to say you should always designate a specific scotch because otherwise you will just pour from a bucket behind the bar. <laughs> and, th- and that can be true. So as a result, I usually say Johnny Walker Black Label. But it, I say it because I drink it with soda water these days. I've, the older I've got, the less I can just drink it straight. So I tend to have it watered down with... Uh, soda water. Oh, scotch and soda. But That's... you are actually making me—I should say—since we're on the subject of booze—you are making me break what My actually my only drinking rule. I was always told there were two rules of drinking: the things you shouldn't do. One was never to drink alone, and yeah. the other was never to drink before six. And I think the first piece of advice is madness. <laughs> Um, many of the best drinks you'll ever have alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, what better thing is there than to have the first cocktail of the evening on your own reading a good book knowing someone wonderful is coming for dinner? But I have I have stuck pretty uh, solidly to the six o'clock rule. So since it's now not even four, this is a very <laughs> rare... You wouldn't believe... My friends will be horrified.
0: And it's not like we're just going to sip a little wine here. I mean, we're coming no. out of the gates with something yeah, more significant. Yeah, exactly. um, So yeah, it's only for you. You see, when I break my rule, I thank you very much. I you're here, we're having drinks. I'm thrilled that the cherry's in there. The cherries, Cherry's the best way. I had a friend who was
2: staying with me in Manhattan recently and uh, from the UK, and we drank a lot of Manhattans. And he said to a friend when he got back to England, he said, it's such an amazing drink because the whole thing is alcoholic. And then you get to the end, thank you, and there's a cherry, and you think, oh, some goodness, and that's got alcohol filled in it as well. So it's just
1: nothing <laughs> that's not that alcohol. A infused cherry. Well,
2: cheers. It's great, it's great to see very you. very good
0: health. Cheers. Mmm. That's good. That is good. That's I good. think the key with the Manhattan is getting the right sweet vermouth. Absolutely, that's a good one. Mm. All righty. Well, so I have some notes on you. You were born Hammersmith, London. I was born in London. I think that's inaccurate. That's Hammersmith is inaccurate. Wikipedia. Damn Wikipedia. Yeah, uh, I was leaving inaccurate things on there. So. Right. I should have tested that first. That's like the third time <laughs> Wikipedia has led me astray in these interviews. Only the third. Uh, you know, I actually, I start just as a little, you know, secret to listeners. I do start out with Wikipedia and it is unreliable. You know, I, I know that, but it's a great leaping off point. And it, can, then you can yeah, it can be. Go yeah. to the citations and dig down, but it gives Anyhow, you a pretty good overview. I was it. born in London. That is true. Oh, well, Hammersmith is, true. is such a good name too. I like that. Well, well, yeah. well let's find out if the, the rest of what I learned from Wikipedia is accurate. Your mother was a school teacher and your father was a civil servant. That is true. Yes. yes. And I read that your father speaks Gaelic.
2: That's right. Gaelic is Gaelic. Gaelic is the Irish one. Gaelic is the Scots one. Okay. There aren't many Gaelic speakers
0: left. A few, maybe a couple hundred thousand. Well, I, actually, I looked that up. Uh, do, can you speak any? I can count to ten in Gaelic. Can you can you give us to three? Because I'm dying to know what it sounds like. Unyatria is one, two, three. Unyatria. Unyatria. That's all the way to ten. That's it. So I looked it up. There are fifty-seven thousand fluent speakers. Is that of all now? Really? That's it. And eighty-seven thousand can speak some. So you're in rare yeah. company already. Gosh,
2: that's yeah, it. it it's, it's one of those languages that's, di- that's sort of dying because it's very, very complicated.
0: Well, where would you go to learn it? You, you,
2: they've tried to revive it, as people often do with dying languages. And it's sort of hopeless in a way because uh, the letters, are, there's, there's so many silent letters and things like that. Mm. But it is actually a very poetic language. Um, there are lovely words in it. Like, There's actually a word for um, being watched over during your sleep.
0: That's kinda nice. Things like that. Yeah. It, 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 the same thing with Welsh, there's
2: sort of kenning words. Words that sum up a,
0: a thing. Alright, last request for Gallic speaking But what is the word for being watched over in your sleep? I can't remember I wish <laughs> I could I need it Right, it, it sounds so poetic and beautiful I want to know that So then you go on to Magdalene College Am I saying no, that no, right? Magdalene M- College Magdalene Magdalene, it's spelt Magdalene Pronounced Magdalene
2: It's a trick okay. to discover outsiders
0: You know, so that happened to me I was embarrassed by that exact thing I was like, I was over in Berkeley Square And they're like, right.
2: it's Berkeley Square, you yeah, yeah, moron yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but the other way it happens the other way around. You know, Brits come to America. And go, uh, the University
0: of Berkeley in uh, yeah. <laughs> California. No, no, no. So uh Maudlin yep. College, founded fourteen mm-hmm. Um before my time, but yeah. Yeah. I was over there one summer, I was doing a graduate oh. uh program, international business, so I stayed at Balliol, which is even oh. older, it was twelve something. Yeah, I think they all sort of argue about who's the oldest. It's a- it's such a magical place to be. I remember is, walking into it? the Bodleian Library and just, you know, for an American where a building 75 years old is something, mm. you know, old over there. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, Oxford is very beautiful. I was very lucky to be there. So at 19, you write your first, what will become your first published work, which is the biography of Lord Alfred Douglas, mm. which none of them Christopher Hitchens described as masterly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. at 19, you're out of the gates in the publishing
2: world. That's right. That's how I got to know Christopher. And, uh, yeah, he reviewed that book in the New York Review of Books. And, yeah. Um, uh it was published by hodder in the uk miramax books in the us and uh uh yes so i was um i think i was 20 when it came out in my second year at oxford and um and yes and then i found myself i woke up and discovered i was an author um i have a friend who's a playwright who said that he'd sort of wondered until after his first hit you know how you become a playwright? And he writes, mm-hmm. Oh, you just write a play. <laughs> it's the same with yeah, being you. an author. <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> Oh, I wrote a book. I suppose I'm an author now. Um, yeah. But yes, yeah, so I sort of started quite early. Actually, that book was reissued uh, a couple of years ago on its twentieth anniversary. And um, that made me feel first terribly old, and then secondly terribly nervous because I had to read it again for the first time in twenty years. And how did it hold up for you? Actually, really well. I I, I loved reading it. I, I I it was so much I'd just forgotten, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 you know a few things as I said in the new preface I wrote for the new edition. Uh, several things I realized that age had made me think about differently. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You know, speaking of that and Hitchens, I I, I feel like Hitchens had a arc of perspective on at least the political spectrum mm. is similar to Crowdhammer in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hitchens was uh, maybe started a little farther left than Charles did mm. and ended a little more in the center than Charles did, yeah. but they both kind of moved left to right. Yeah, both great uh, great uh, heroes of mine. Mm-hmm. I didn't know Crowdhammer well. I met him a couple of times, but what a writer he was. And Yeah. yeah. The, uh, we went back and read The Things That Matter, and we yes. got to a few of those, and we stopped and read them to our kids. Like, this really? is just so... Well, there was one about... His older brother passing yes, away, the, he wrote, "You know, magnificent." Charlie place. plays, I love that, and we, so we place. read that to our son who has a younger brother. Like he plays, you know. So, so listeners mm-hmm. know, Charles had an older brother who was the stud of the neighborhood, and all the kids would get together to play stickball in the yard. And Charles was the little kid, and he was younger than everybody. And everybody were like, we don't want, you know, and the guy who was basically the leader of the neighborhood would say, "Charlie plays." And that was how Charles ended this essay in tribute to his brother who just passed. And you know, we're all crying as we read this. And, it's an incredible piece of writing
2: that. Yeah. He
0: was such a fluent performer
2: on television and media as well. He was a really wonderful, Yeah, wonderful figure.
0: So I was thinking about the other day because uh, you came to mind because a buddy of mine was reading Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, which Very is good that book. book about, you know, sort of on the Stoic philosophy. And that got me going on a kick of going through some classics again. And mm. I was thinking, man, it would be great to be like Socrates and Plato and sit around all day and contemplate the universe and mankind. But who would pay me for that? You know, like philosopher has not been an item on (laughs) career day in a couple thousand years. But then I thought again about it Mm. and you came to mind because that really is, you have carved out a career as a modern day philosopher. That's kind Mm. of what you do.
2: Well, I've managed to at least live my life in the world of ideas, Mm -hmm. which is an enormous privilege. Um, Actually, even back in the day, Socrates wasn't paid. It's it's one of the things he says um, in the the famous defense, uh, his defense of himself that Plato writes up, and uh, in the Phaedo, the second of the dialogues about Socrates. And um, if Socrates, one of his defenses before before his execution is, uh, I didn't make any money, any money from this. If I'd have, if I'd have been a cynical person wishing to lead people astray. I'd have been charging every time I debated and discussed ideas with people, but I never did. And you can ask anyone in Athens and they'll know. It's a very interesting boast. How did he ever make money? I don't think he particularly had much. Mm -hmm. Um, But he definitely, he he definitely didn't, as it were, charge. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, For tutoring services, even. No. I mean, he he just played with ideas.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's it, the, the, the thing in our own day that's um, well there are two things that are hardest. One, one is to be able to make money uh, and think um, since it's possible clearly to make money and not think. But we not all know that. Um, and the second one is to have what Wilde famously described once as the ability to play gracefully with ideas. And uh, that seems that seems to be a sort of dying art that mm-hmm. one does worry me um, there are v- very few people around who one can disagree with and discuss amicably with and, right and um, I think it's to all of our detriment that that's the case
0: actually yeah I want to ask you about that in a bit um, you know I, I think of the famous you uh, Gore Vidal, William F. Buckley debates mm. and things like that. Not that that was exactly amicable, but I, I want to <laughs> get to that later uh, in a bit. So you are making money as a thinker and a writer and mm. a expressor of ideas. And so I was just, uh, in the last few weeks, knowing this was coming up, reading around some of your work, and I just wanted to pick one at random to discuss with you a bit, uh, which was you wrote A Defense of Picasso, which I loved. And Picasso yes. is more recently getting raked over for some of his bad behavior with women during mm-hmm. his... His life, and you had the concept of the genius exception in your piece, mm-hmm. in which we should allow that a genius's mind works slightly differently, yeah. and therefore we ought to afford a bit more leeway for their behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least we, being maybe posterity, if not contemporaneous, mm-hmm. uh, you know, e- either way. But before before we talk more about the ideas in the piece, I I want to ask you that about the response to that, because I'm sure hmm. pieces, many of your pieces, this one, touch a nerve with some people either in support or who yes. want to come attack you. So what's the response to some of the pieces you put out there? Well,
2: I I have a slightly curious response to, to, to everything I put out there, which is that um, I'm sort of interested and not that interested in the response. Um, Philip Pullman once said that, that writing books was like throwing pebbles in a stream. You know, you throw them and at some point they break the surface and you don't know which one will, you know. Um, and it's, it's certainly like that with... Pieces. Uh, You don't really know what's going to hit a nerve and what isn't. You you can write about what interests you, and that's always what I do. I sort tend to think if if you've done stuff that works, the likelihood is that when you're interested in something, it's something that's interesting. That's quite an important thing to sort of work out. And um, and then I sort of don't really mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I know there are some opinions I have that much of my readership. For instance, doesn't agree with, but I don't seek out the disagreement that they feel about it, and i, I always take that that line of Kipling's rather over quoted poem, if to mind, you know he says at some point in that poem, uh, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and greet these two impostors just the same, yes, yeah, and that's how I feel really I, I when something goes very well, when there's a wonderful reaction to something I've written. I, I sort of try to treat it in the same way that I would a disaster.
0: Well, what, and vice what is the versa? actual form in which you greet the feedback? I mean, I'm sure there's emails, but have you ever been stopped in a restaurant and someone oh, yes. says you are terrible? Blah blah yes. blah. Yes, uh, although that happened, that's happened very
2: rarely in my life. Uh, my experience is only the opposite, really. Uh, I suppose online people have a, a verbosity and a courage that right. they turn out not to have in person yeah, yeah uh so very rarely and i've I've you know spoken with friends in similar fields about this Very rarely does somebody come over and say, I think you're a you know a piece of uh, they tend to save that for the for the um safety of their their mother's basement and the keyboard and right. the keyboard, but in person be, people are, are only poli- very nice and warm and and sometimes people say, I don't agree with you on everything, but I like X, you know, mm-hmm. and um, so I don't really know. I mean, I, I, uh, that, that Picasso piece, I was um, i was—I was trying to make, I'm very worried about a sort of new Puritanism, which has been coming in largely from the left, but it, it, it happens on the right as well, where we sort of expect everybody to be squeaky clean mm-hmm. and... Uh, yeah. Uh, apart from anything else, I think all of the really interesting people sort of exist on a sort of border between light and darkness, you know, and um, uh, Picasso was certainly
0: one of them. And I would yeah. argue most geniuses are to some yeah. extent. Uh, so that's interesting, the between the light and darkness. So where is is there a line as we get through that sort of blurred mm-hmm. phase? Like, let's take... Uh, so the idea, Picasso should have a genius exception. And, mm-hmm. and I love his art. I, I love seeing I him. actually I do don't, not by the way. I was down. defending
2: him whilst not, not particularly like admiring even Picasso's art. I admire him as a... I recognize noble. he's obviously a genius. Obviously yeah, a genius. Yeah. He happened. He happened. Uh, and everyone after had to contend with him. But actually, I, I'm not a special admirer of his art. But yes, I, I just think that the idea that you would treat a, a genius and say oh you know he had flaws and use the flaws against and us.
0: therefore must be expunged from the record of, and and know. the truth is you can't expunge right. i mean it, it's I said to, to your piece. point picasso happened every artist since picasso yes. like how how do, do we expunge every picasso disciple like you can't do you can't and do also that. it's
2: sort of it's sort of
0: um I mean, the genius exemption
2: idea was something that I think has been in the culture uh, throughout. Yeah, I gave the example, I think, in that piece of Caravaggio. If you go to... In, Caravaggio is one of the most... You go to any gallery in the world and uh, any collection, and the Caravaggios will be the ones that people will, will seek out and, and want to see mm-hmm. because there is something undeniably gripping and he was revolutionary in his use of light, but among other things. But they never failed to mention the fact that he also killed a man mm-hmm. and had to flee uh, then, not yet Italy, but flee to Sicily. And it's not held against him. People don't say, I think we've got to take down this Caravaggio because he was a murderer. In actual fact, it's always sort of been used as a sort of plus uh, mm-hmm. for Caravaggio. I don't happen to think that murdering a man is a particular plus, but it, it is regarded as being a sort of, ooh, as additional darkness right. here. Right. So... So it is something we sort of have built in. And um, I, I just don't like the all well, the prudishness and the prurience that's become part of our day. And everybody in the past has to be as we think we should be today. And I don't think you like what we think we should be today. And I certainly don't want to apply these standards retrospectively.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I also think it's it's more, you know, I think about this in the context of Woody Allen, too. I, and mm-hmm. a hu- I think also in the genius category. And yep. we love his films. My Everyone in my family loves his films. Uh, to the point that my wife has examined legal documents to find out, like, did he do it? Mm. You know, and um, but whether he did or not, I think it's possible to, to divorce the person from the work. Of course,
2: and we and we were always capable of doing that. Yeah, I mean, and, we, and
0: therefore there uh, there are two legacies. If you're a villain, yeah. you can go down as a villain as a person, but right. The work, and if you're look, if you're not a genius, there's nothing to hang on the walls or read a hundred years from now, and you just go down as a villain. But as a Absolutely. genius, you might have a second legacy. Around the work, yes,
2: absolutely, and I think, and I, and I, th- I think, apart from anything else, the war on geniuses from the past by finding fault with their personal behaviour or something else is, apart from anything else, just incredibly boring. Um, uh, I like people to be interesting and difficult and, and mm-hmm. quirky and odd and 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 uh, have oddities and difficultness and and much more. And I certainly expect that's the case with anyone who's. I don't know trying to plumb the human condition you know mm-hmm. and um it, 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 there's just something I mean, I've spoken about it a number of times in public before but I mean the I hate this sort of idea that the the, the principal aim of life is to be harmless you know mm-hmm. um I don't think it's a particularly pleasant aspiration I don't think anything particularly great can come from it and I think this sort of neutered harmless people uh, are unlikely to do anything of any note you
0: yeah. know Yeah. Well. Anyway, I condemn the whole piece as self-serving because, as a genius, you're just (laughs) self-administering more behavioral leeway. You you should be exempt from this whole discussion. I, as neither villain nor genius, can (laughs) say whatever I want. So this is a a good. So having sort of talked through one example of a bit of your writing and and kind of where you go with it, I wanted to talk a bit about your process. I usually have a process Mm. section in these discussions, and. To me, you seem to think a bit like a litigator in that you anticipate points of attack Mm -hmm. and you line up your facts uh, preemptively to to address that. And so by the time your publisher is hitting print on something, things are fairly bulletproof. Yes. And I'm wondering, as part of your process, do you test your logic and your ideas with a friend? And we kind of alluded to this earlier. Do you have a Mm -hmm. friend who is friendly and yet holds very different belief systems to poke holes in things before uh, I, you put it out there. I certainly don't have
2: one person that I pass anything through. Um, I suppose the dinner table or the bar stool is my uh, yeah. is my fencing ground. You
0: know? <laughs> um,
2: I, I like arguing things out over drinks, over dinner,
0: over... Is fights, there a regular uh, cast of characters in these No, scenarios? it rotates
2: all the time. And generally, it's very um, agreeable. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that there are people in Britain, like in America, um, who are sort of nervous about having any interesting discussions. Um, And those people are much to be avoided. Um, You know, the people who want to sort of talk about how they got there. Um, That's one of my bugbears, is people who tell you their travel arrangements. Um, I want to get into the stuff. You know, I was always told when I was growing up, you know, the two things you don't talk about in polite society are basically God and politics. I thought... Mm -hmm. What else you meant to talk about? The weather? I mean, of course, that's the British answer. Yes, of course, the weather. Uh, I I don't think that's enough for the dinner table. So I I find myself, wherever I am,
0: arguing, but also listening. I mean, uh, you know... uh, Well, how often does it... So we, as you may suspect, we we delve into these areas, and every once in a while, it does take a bad turn. You know, it just didn't go... People did not keep it in the friendly way. It it touched a nerve for someone who then... Mm -hmm kind of lost their mind a little
2: yeah that can happen it's it's only happened i think once to me since i've been in new york Mm. there was a woman who sort of went completely crazy at dinner and we had an argument about immigration at the southern border and uh, she just couldn't deal with it literally screaming and then ran out i thought it was hilarious (laughs) Uh, my, my my hosts were absolutely horrified but I thought it was hilarious. and they, they were horrified partly because they thought I might be really offended. I, thought, yeah. I just thought it was embarrassing for her. Have you
0: ever been on the other side of that? Has someone ever gotten under your skin in a way that oh, you feel like, I no. behaved so badly I kind of lost it a little? Uh, no, not especially. I'm mean, sure, sure I have lost it on occasions. But
2: um, I, I've, I mean, I've been at things. I, there was once uh, some years ago. I won't name the cast of characters, but there was somebody who was a very good enemy of mine uh, who I discovered it. Just before dinner, was at the same dinner and uh, had just done something really reprehensible. And uh, a friend of mine was there, and she said, "Douglas, somebody <laughs> is going to have to leave this table, but it will not be us." <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> and I, I said, "Of course, no, I'm not leaving." Um, uh, but but yes, I mean, in general, people are nice, and 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 mm-hmm. uh, it's a terrible giveaway if people actually sort of, you know, can't cope with you know discussing things but the best thing is, is listening I mean that's you know a lot of people aren't, aren't that good at it but um, like whenever I travel and I travel a lot uh, around the world and around America indeed uh, um, sometimes people sort of say you, you seem sort of different and I say well that's because I'm on receive mode I, I, mm-hmm. I'm i not like coming to Iraq in order to talk at people right I'm not persuading I'm, anyone here I'm, I, taking I, I'm it here in. to listen you know and that's that's always my way with with travel is just asking questions
0: and listening and learning. Speaking of your the, the good enemy you mentioned there, or the or the Vidal-Buckley debates, is there mm-hmm. anyone out there that you would like to debate th- that you think could maybe do it in a constructive way? Um, unfortunately, not at the moment. Um, there are ones who
2: I'd like to debate who w- wouldn't be able to do it. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to n- debate Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project or Robin DiAngelo, the race huckster, uh, author of White Fragility and other unreadable terms, I'd love to Mm -hmm. debate Ibrahim X. Kendi. Mm -hmm. But all three people I've just mentioned are a new form of public figure in America, which is the public figure who throws out incendiary ideas and will not defend them in public. In fact, says, I will not debate these ideas because uh, all opponents Mm -hmm. are de facto racists and so on. Mm -hmm. So it's a shame because I think all of these people have among the weakest arguments I've ever seen in my lifetime and i think that they should be exposed for them on stage but that's why they won't go on stage because they'd be they'd be exposed I, i've had the great pleasure recently of debating malcolm gladwell who i had a very low opinion of beforehand and had less of an opinion of by the time we'd left the stage he turned out to be a truly stupid man uh, and i didn't really realize that going in and it was partly because he didn't listen and he did a podcast afterwards where he reflected on it and slightly and he We we, we sort of beat him rather soundly. Um, Not that that particularly matters to me either, but um, he presented himself very badly, and and partly it was because he wouldn't listen. Mm. He didn't listen to anything we were saying. And I said to him on stage, I said, You're just, you're not listening when we say things. You, You react to things we haven't said, and it's very odd. Um. So, but I find that people like him. I mean, he was being paid very well on that occasion, which is why I think he turned up. But um, in where can general, I find this debate? Well, it's, called, it's called the Monk debate, the, one of the Toronto Monk debates, which M U N K. It's online, um, and uh, uh, yeah, I, it was Matt Taibbi and. Me against Malcolm Gladwell and Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times who performed. Was there a, a specific it was about, topic? It was about the mainstream media, okay. whether or not you could trust it. And my side was simply arguing that you you shouldn't. You should still absorb it, but you you can't trust it in the mm-hmm. way that
0: it seems that you might have the hoped. Evidence is against them. I don't know how they defended. Well, well that. I rather thought that, that
2: they lost historically badly because um, uh, first of all, they presented themselves very badly, argued very badly behaved disingenuously and dishonestly on stage, and also were wrong and that's a terrible combination. <laughs> right. Um, that that adds up to a loss. Yeah. But but
0: yes, yeah, so so there are lots of people I'd like to debate, but I find they sort of don't show up. Uh, there are some people What about, like old... I don't know. I mean, you and Rachel Maddow probably have a different world view. She she yeah, might but, also be an Oxford or a Cambridge person or something uh, I like think that. she spent a bit of time at one of them, if I remember. Yeah, I think... so she's smart. Yeah, well, it doesn't one.
2: necessarily mean you've met plenty of dim people from these places. But um uh I think she um she's an act. I don't think she's a real uh, ideas person. I mean, it's just an act. I mean, she she has a shtick where you know she sits in front of the monitor and uh, reads reads out and c- cries sometimes when it's good for ratings. And um, I don't I don't think it's a real ideas person by any means. I mean, ideas person would be willing to contend with their opponent's views at their strongest. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't create straw men arguments, uh, they wouldn't just assume their opponents were evil, you know. I had a late friend, a great philosopher, Roger Scruton, who made many great insights in his life, but one of them was that there is a right-left divide that is of some significance still, which is that although there are differences, there are people who this certainly doesn't apply to. And bro- broad, broadly speaking, people on the right tend to think that people on the left are, are wrong, Mm-hmm. Um, but people on the left believe that people on the right are evil. Yeah. And that is yeah. a very hard – I would find it very hard to sit down opposite somebody I actually thought was evil. So maybe they do actually think that and therefore they can't debate
0: or discuss mm-hmm. because if they mark up, like evil comes in and wins. Well, and it just kills debate. I mean, it kills claiming debate. the moral high ground and leveling, leveling accusations of evil, Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, you, there's no – Constructive conversation that can, can no. follow that. So, getting getting on the process thing, just a couple more are there before we dive into some of your stuff, especially on the your your new book, "The War on the West," which I loved. I, I'm wondering how you spend your time. So, you're doing you work uh, also at the Post. So you're, you're doing mm-hmm. regular writing. As, as I write as, four columns a week. Four columns a week. That's so. How do you spend your time? Like going back to Socrates, I picture him, you know, throwing on the to- the toga and going for long walks of just quiet thinking like not even because writing is too specific an application of thought mm. I like, do you schedule quiet time to just think open-endedly
2: uh, I do certainly try to find time for that the best way for, for me is, uh, is reading I mean um, mm. I find that a day where I haven't read I don't just mean articles and you know the newspapers which you have to read um, but I mean I, I I need to set a time I try to set aside time every day to read a uh, um
0: books history book anything a- meditations anything. by i mean Mark yes,
2: often it's reading backwards i mean reading something that from the past i just there's a big gap i haven't read um sometimes it's something new that i really want to read um often it's something in a completely different area i was at a book launch last night my friend Lawrence krauss a science writer and he um he's got a new book out about the things that science doesn't know uh, like the mm-hmm. the, rem- the questions that it hasn't got answers undiscovered to yet. Territory, The undiscovered yeah, territory. Yeah. It's a very interesting subject. So I, I try to make sure I spend a couple of hours. How much this fiction morning. do you read? You read? Um, uh, as much as I can, and but I'm very picky um, with fiction. I tend to really only want to read
0: books I'm sure are masterpieces. Mm-hmm. You know, I. Um, we've. I'm sure we've had some of them on this show: Jennifer Egan and Amor Tolls and. Well, a a long list. Are there any titles that jump out to you in the fiction territory lately? Have you been well? So much of it is
2: not new because, because of the amount of time I read very slowly, and so I'm very bitter if I'm recommended a novel of some length and it's not good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And history does the sieving and the sifting, of course. So I can be confident of books up to about you know fifty years ago that they're actually. Good, yeah. If they've if have lasted, with novels, um, it's 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 tricky with new ones. I, I there are a couple of modern writers I read everything by when it comes when they come out, but mainly I actually read classics. But I do love there are certain periods in your life when it's harder to read fiction. I don't know if you find this, but when one's incredibly literal, you know, and you read mm-hmm. the first sentence, you think, "No, he didn't." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then there's other times yeah. when you're so fed up with the factual, you know, the sort of precision of mm-hmm. of that and you think i i need a story i need a i need a thanks. i agree
0: with you it's got to be good I, someone was just saying you know we're going to live another 40 years and i'm going to read you know 12 novels a year mm. so i've got you know basically 500 novels left in my life like it's going to have to be a good one for me mm-hmm. to pick it up and get through it but I, I love the idea that you're a slow reader too and i think uh, so for example our third grader came home the other day and he said so and so read harry potter in two days he's such a fat i'm like Ask him to name three things that happen in the book. He won't be able to do it. Like It's yes. not about reading fast. Read slowly. Right. Understand it. That's right. Um, so I, I think another part of your process, just having gotten to know you a bit and, and read some of your work, you are a real student of history. Yes. Um, so yes, I try to be. Yeah. I think that's, that's such an important part of context for the present day and just general knowledge. It's it's so important to uh, – Well, the, uh, the best thing about,
2: about reading
0: history and knowing history, and
2: I've always also had a habit of having friends who are much older than me. Um, one problem of which is you go to more funerals than you otherwise would. But, um, but I've always sought out, not particularly consciously, but just friends who are older and who who who, who know things I don't know and who've lived through things I haven't lived through, and, and so on. I can never understand why more people don't do it. Um, but one of the things that it does, like with reading history, is it 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 does put your present. Alarms into some context, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, there is such a hysteria, particularly in modern America, about current events. Things have never been so bad, you know. And you, you want to (laughs) bet, you know. I mean, everything was. I mean, consider just basic things like putting food on the table. Yeah, we take it for granted. In fact, not just for granted; it's a right to have food on the table. You go back to two generations for some, for many people alive, only one and that was not a guaranteed thing and um if you didn't have food on the table there was no way to get it there was no right to have food like there was no right to have a shelter of your head if you, if you fell you fell all the way to the bottom and it was terrifying mm-hmm. i mean it was a big driver for some people and and a cause of unimaginable pain and horror to millions and millions of others but that was what life was like until yesterday yeah uh, um, and uh, and the other thing about reading history is, that, of course, you you remember that everybody had bizarre ideas in their own day. And I like to say that instead of forever scouring the past and scolding it, a much better thing to do is to say, um, since every era had very strange ideas, which we now know not to be true... Or think actually terrible. Um, assume that we're doing things in our own day as well and try to work out what they might be. Right. Uh, uh, d- don't stand as judge, juror, and executioner on the past, apart from anything else, because what are you going to do about the past? It happened, and it happened, and we're here. Um, but try to, try to work out how
0: the future might view us. And um, uh, if we continue on this current trend line, not well. You know, well, nobody comes out of anything. Well, I mean,
2: look at you know one of the I mentioned, the war in the West. But I mean, look at you know, if 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 one man, um, Churchill, is that where you go? Yeah, if if one yeah. man did did the most that anyone could do in human history to stop the rise of real evil in nazi fascism german fascism it was winston churchill but you know today people are saying well he got this wrong and in the middle of world war Two, he should have done this and he did this instead and he made this mistake and you know or he drank too much or whatever it is and 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 you think wow um if you're going to think that you know, if you're going to treat the past by such standards, <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: wow, are we going to be looked down I on. I mean, what, what a luxury to treat it with such standards, Absolutely. too. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. oh my gosh. Um, so speaking of The War on the West, which is uh, your most recent book out in 22, you point out many hypocrisies in the book. And I wanted to ask you about a couple of them. So your your writing is, is so bulletproof that you can't catch you in a moment of hypocrisy. It's like he said this here, but check out that on page whatever. That, right. that doesn't happen, but... You find that in a number of cases around the world. And I just want to ask you one at mm. random. There's this French intellectual who was accused and and maybe was a, a pedophile. And I'll, I'll mm. probably butcher the name, Michel Foucault. Foucault. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as a result of your publication, and, and you point out in the book, at that time there was really no criticism of him because his viewpoint on you know, his cultural political viewpoint sort of aligned with folks in a way that he was not taking any incoming for his a yeah. uh, recommendation that we lower the age of consent to 12. Yeah, yeah. So since publication, has anyone rounded back to some of these points of hypocrisy that you find in the book and, and said, hey, you know, Douglas pointed this out. Maybe, you know, let's take no. another look. No, not at all. Because they won't do it with their gods. It's the same with Marx.
2: I pointed out in the book, you know, Marx is, I mean, fantastically racist, not just by the standards of his time, but by any standards um think of all the people who've been done over in recent years for having views on race that are di- that differ from ours in 2022 2023 and um you know Mr Jefferson Washington I mean all the founding fathers mm-hmm. uh, none of them had views on race as reprehensible as those of Karl Marx but we, we you know uh, statues have actually gone up to Karl Marx in recent years in free countries, you know, uh, and to Engels. And uh, the the letters between Marx and Engels, for instance, are filled with, you know, the N-word of, you know, using Jew as a demeaning, you know, term of attack and much more. And I mentioned this and I haven't – all I found is a few left-wing Marxists saying, um, well, he was a man of his time, to which I've quite enjoyed saying – Right. Oh, like Thomas Jefferson. Like Thomas Jefferson, you know? yeah, exactly. And the, and as for Foucault, Foucault is a very important figure. Uh, um, intellectuals always risk overstating the significance of intellectuals because they would, wouldn't they? Um, but uh, Foucault really was very in- influential, and he's still one, one of the most cited figures on uh, thesis papers in America it, across all disciplines. And that's because he, um, among his theories, was a sort of theory of power being the single most important lens through which to look at everything. And he does this particularly in his history of sexuality and um, his work on prisons and uh, and the like. But the point is, I mean, I think that Foucault's you know, a very talented figure, but obviously wrong, or at least uh, reductive, in that most people in their lives are motivated, in my experience, by, by love, actually, love of family, love of loved ones love of country and much more i don't think it is a struggle for power that that motivates most people but foucault did think that and um and that's the basis of much of the modern social justice movements and and others is to locate where power is and take it as if it's a sort of finite quantity and you know you can Mm -hmm. can take 50 percent of your power and have it to myself and so on um and uh, but, uh, yes, I pointed out that, you know, Foucaults, you know, had, again, I mean, uh, he he did a, a lot of things that we wouldn't approve of now. But then just before I wrote The War on the West, you know, it came out that uh, in France, you know, there's another contemporary and friend of Foucault's you know, testified to him, him, you know, abusing uh, underage boys in North Africa, which has a sort of colonialist tinge to it as well as a pedophilic one. And, uh, you know, any other figure, you would have thought it would dent their posthumous reputation a bit, at least. And it's had no dent on Foucault. In fact, um, the fourth volume, the previously unpublished volume of his History of Sexuality, came out after these revelations. Mm -hmm. Um, I would have thought that if, you know, it had turned out that William F. Buckley, Jr. or um, any other prominent conservative of the last hundred years had done anything like this a, you know the, yeah. the books would be pulled from the shelves yeah. I mean rightly or wrongly they would, the, the, the books would be pulled from the shelves they would, be, they would become entirely cancelled um, you
0: know I mean it's it's, it's it's always interesting to do that turnabout of how would this be treated if it were yeah you know, someone from the other side of the aisle. You, you talked about uh, slavery quite a bit in the mm-hmm. book. You mentioned it in the context of Marx, where it's in his printed, you know, it's in mm-hmm. his, you know, it's not hard to find. It's, it's there. You present the discussion of slavery in an, in an interesting way because you you not only put it in the context of history going back thousands of years, but you also talk about present day, and I was stunned to read in your book that at present time in our mm-hmm. in the world... There are 40 million people living under slavery. Mm-hmm. I, I was shocked to hear that. Yeah, I've, I've I've met some in my travels across
2: Africa and the Middle East. Um, uh, met people who were born as slaves. Um, it's it's a pretty horrifying thing to consider. Um, I mentioned that. Yes, that's that's far more than the slaves around at the height of the transatlantic slave trade, for instance. Right, I mean, maybe 11 to 12 million people came across, were put across the Atlantic the height of the transatlantic slave trade about 18 million went east to the arab slave trade where the men were castrated so they couldn't reproduce um and uh, but, but th- 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 all that together is less than the number of slaves in the world today and I, I pointed out not to absolve any one of historic um sins or anything else but just to say among other things, let's understand the full context of this. Let's not allow this context collapse that we've been seeing, particularly about American history in recent years. And also, you know, let's let's work out seriously and genuinely what is a good use of our time. And is it what Governor Newsom, for instance, thinks in California, which is to give, you know, more than a million dollars to everyone who can prove that they're descended from slaves in California, which is... Mm-hmm. Um, racket of its own Um or would it be instead of giving money to people who have suffered no harm and demanding that money is given by people who have done no wrong, uh, wouldn't it be better to apply our energies to wiping out slavery in the world today? Um, mm-hmm. That would seem to me to be a much better and more ethical use of our time but um since I pointed this out I'm pleased that a number of people have picked this up uh, and have sort of run with this and I notice it's getting more traction and more notice it's very important in america in particular your, your
0: discussion around reparations or that yes your reparations discu- as
2: well uh, around more uh, and
0: more people are,
2: are, 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 i think are realizing echoing uh, some of the arguments i've made and, and new ones of their own are realizing that i mean this is a this is a a, a a hell that
0: they haven't be fair i mean where do you where do you draw the line how do you how do you
2: well one of my one of my ways of uh, suggesting that you stop it in its tracks is to say that everyone in america should uh, there should be a whip around and um go through every neighborhood black white every every neighborhood in america and take money from them to give to the most uh, oppressed people of all time which is the jews obviously and um if if everyone's cool with that then <laughs> i suspect it could be a problem
0: yeah, yeah i
2: mean i mean just even to think about it is is is, is ridiculous yeah and um I'm that when a bad idea has an easy ride and the reparations idea has had an awfully easy ride, um, as has the argument about America's so-called original sin of slavery. I mean, you know, I try to say in the book, you know, it's not to uh, by any means, you know, um, pass over the, the crimes of American slavery, slavery, but but everybody in the world was slaving and had been since the beginning of recorded yeah, I mean, human slavery history.
0: existed before we figured out how to grow a vegetable. And it's know. a very strange yeah. thing to, to apply this. I mean, I had
2: a, I write a column for spectator in England's, England's oldest weekly. And, um, Uh, We just published a column uh, last week by somebody called Sean Thomas, making a very important point that, you know, he looked back into his own family history. They were all British. Most of them had lived in Cornwall. um, And somebody had come over with the Normans at some point. But uh, it's a thousand years ago. And um, but he worked out, you know, until well, in the early 19th century, all of his forebears worked down tin mines and they were sent down the tin mines from the age of 10. And um, the average life expectancy was 23. The average life on a plantation was significantly higher than that. And that isn't to say that the plantations were good by any means or or make any excuse for them. It's simply to say, you know, life for most people, again, until yesterday, was absolutely hellish. Mm -hmm. And to pretend that it was only hellish according to certain strictures that we have decided to lean on especially heavily today... I think does an injustice to everyone. And I don't mm. think it rights any wrongs today. I think it's actually much much more likely to cause a,
0: a, an upsurge of new resentments. Mm-hmm. Well, I applaud you for being able to start these conversations because it's mm. it's a place where most people are too afraid to go, but it's exactly where we do need to go. To your to your earlier yeah. point, it's like what conversations should we be having? I mean, these yeah. are the these are the tough ones to figure out. One other I wanted to before we get into the the next phase of things, one other topic that I know you take on in the book that is near and dear to my heart as a writer is appropriation. And mm. you talk about it in the context of fashion and art mm. and other things. I think in literature, mm. it's more of a settled debate uh, in, in a way that I can agree with than any other way. Because as a novelist, mm. your whole job is to write a story. Right. And, and you can't do that without inhabiting another character. Mm. Therefore, there there is no book without appropriation. It yes. just has to happen.
2: One of my favorite um, stupid arguments that erupts every year or so from some academics seeking um, tenure is um, an argument that Shakespeare must have been X because of Y that he wrote. Mm. Somebody did a few years ago saying that Shakespeare was clearly a sailor at some point in his career. Why? Because of the opening scenes of The Tempest. You go, well, by that standard, he was... A nobleman in Verona, a king, a queen, mm-hmm. a, a disposed despot, yeah. um, a farmer, a fool, a madman. A, Are you a, believer, a, a So there's a Danish can, prince. I mean, like, how stupid? Uh, where where can do you stand be? on the
0: Shakespeare authorship question? Because there's a whole. A buddy of mine's dad actually wrote a book oh. on this. It was like sort of a he wrote a primer on it. My oh. my friend Hayden Baker, his dad wrote this thing that. Gets into the Shakespeare authorship debate. You know, was it was it actually ten or fifteen different people, or was it this one guy in court? Or who 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 it's an was
2: excruciating, it? It's an excruciating argument. This because um, everybody who gets into it is reliably going to go mad some years later. Mm-hmm. It's. I think that a psychiatrist could easily plot a line from starting to doubt the authorship of Shakespeare to total insanity. Um Nobody gets into this terrain without losing their mind i I' tell you why I think um I think the whole thing always comes down to one thing which is that nobody can at, at some level nobody can believe that that any man or woman had such genius, and that all these thousands of characters were in their head um mm-hmm. all so plausibly and. And deeply written, and uh, I think that it makes a certain type of person sort of infuriated and seeking answers. That maybe it was it must have been a group of people, or um, so. No, I don't. I don't. I, I, I pity the people who fall into that particular well. I have to say or that that bit of quicksand. But but I mention it because, as you know, I mean the the creative um, mind has to be allowed to roam wherever it will and that includes of course inhabiting people's minds who you are not right that is that is fiction that is writing a book that, that is, is what writing. an author does yes yeah, that's, that's the job description that's imagination yeah and, and and yes i mean i try in the in the final chapter of the war in the west in the culture section to to run straight at this and it's one of the bits i'm proudest of because when i discovered this cultural appropriation argument i know i, I did what i always do in these situations which is i read all the texts i can that have You know, made the argument for this and try to find the holes in it. And it's not very hard with that. And as I mentioned uh, in the book, you know, I was struck by the frivolity of the claims. You know, cultural appropriation in our age has been about things like, you know, hairstyles, hair braiding, for instance, Mm -hmm. or Halloween costumes. Well, well, that's not really culture, Uh, that's not art, dance, music, song, literature. Um, these are sort of frivolous edge cases Um, and if there's something that you're you're using on those and you're not using on the main things it's because you know it doesn't work and sure enough as I try to show it just doesn't work once you take it into actual culture Mm -hmm. culture cannot be blockaded by racial group racial origin or national belonging Mm -hmm. I mean how absurd to to think that music, for instance, I give lots of examples in it, but that music has to be siloed according to your racial origin, and if you are black, you have your black music, and if you're white, you have your white music. And I mean, I mean, you know, do you want to extend this? Yeah. And it's the opposite of art. It's the opposite of culture. The whole nature of
0: of culture and of learning is 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 of um. There's a there's a certain absorption exactly. and, and experimentalism that, that is exactly. supposed to happen. Yeah,
2: the actually cultivated mind, as it were, always treads the tricky ledge of not being so open that it falls out completely, but at the same time being as open and receptive as it can be. Yeah, and um, I think it's pitiful that I mean I give the example of um african-american spirituals that a composer who died in 1998 who i happen to know a bit uh michael tippett wrote an oratorio in the 1940s during the second world war called a child of our time it slightly copies the structure of the bach passions and uh, where bach uses lutheran chorales which the audience would have joined in with in his own day in his own church in germany What's now Germany? Um, uh, Michael Tippett uses these spirituals, and it all and it's a it's a description, basically, of Kristallnacht and of, of when the world is falling into the nightmare of World War Two. And at the crucial moments, he uses these these African American spirituals, and they have such power in the work. Mm-hmm. Now, in recent years, people have said in America in particular, the work as a whole is unperformable because he culturally appropriated the music. Mm. And it is so painful to me to watch people making these arguments because I know that that he included these spirituals with a sense of deep admiration and 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 awe of, of where they came from and the history of where they came from. And it's such a, it, you know, and there's many other examples I give, but it's such an example of the reductiveness of our time that even, even things put out there by creative souls in the spirit of generosity have been spun in our own time through this horrible... This terrible lens
0: of, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I am proud to say that I, I do think that literature is on the leading edge of getting this appropriation debate to land in the right place. Yeah, and I then from say. there, in a, in a sense, the market will work it out. Like if you or I wanted to write the definitive book about the American slave experience, it's like, oh, I think Colson Whitehead's going to do that better than you and I are. But it doesn't mean we can't write a book that has slavery as a thread in the well, book and have it be meaningful. And- see,
2: I don't even agree with that. I think I fundamentally disagree with the fact that there are certain insights which are unsurpassable because of something you were born with. Um... I mean, the great well, gay I mean, novel he, could I be written by somebody who isn't gay. You know, the, the, the great but, but there's, l- there's, life of a, women
0: could be written by a man. I, I, mean, I think Colson or a gay man would go through a thirty-year experience of life of absorbing things that would yeah, give him but, insights that.
2: But so so might anyone else. Anyone might else. So might anyone else.
0: I believe. Um,
2: I I don't think that experiences are untransmissible. And if they are, we're in trouble. Mm. Um, if you can't transmit an idea across cultural or other boundaries, then what's well, the point, point of anything? That's I mean, a good what point. Because I point? have
0: actually said at, at dinner parties where these kinds of things come up, like you know, in order to pass legislation or opine on the homeless problem, mm. I don't have to have been a homeless person. Right, you know, I can have ideas about that without having had that experience. So also, somebody, somebody who, who has been homeless might not be capable of doing it as well as somebody who
2: hasn't been if they mm-hmm. want to capture it in a book.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm not saying that it's inevitable, but I, I think the idea that things, as I say, are not uh, transmissible across these boundaries is very, very worrying. And, and we have accepted it in certain cases. And I think we shouldn't. I, th- I think a great poem about womanhood or motherhood or something could be written by a man. I don't see why not.
0: Yeah. I... uh. I'm not going to take on Coulson in the uh, in in his department, but, <laughs> no, I, mean, I, but I get your you know. point. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back.
2: Hey, mom. First things first. Thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say yes. I need help, and
0: yes, I choose me, and that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Every day,
1: our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human,
2: Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I
0: was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of.
1: At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.
0: The not not only your book, the War on the West, but the sort of objective of it and our current state. So the book came out in 2022, mm-hmm. and returning to your your idea of the pendulum effect. So there, our culture has sort of swung way out on this pendulum of yeah. of of many of the sort of ideas from you know whether it's far left or, or far right, whatever. We're sort of way out there on a couple of cultural threads since the publication of your book. Do you feel the pu- the pendulum has either arrested? Or started to come down just because uh, as a few examples, you know, all the defund police thing mm. are, have largely been refunded or <laughs> Bud Light is getting annihilated right mm, now. That's true. So what do you where is the
2: pendulum? Um, I mentioned in my previous book, The Madness of Crowds, that um my aim with that book was to jump over every idiotic taboo of our time and uh, detonate them in the hope that other people would join me in pogo sticking across the minefield and my experience is that as a self-appointed part-time minesweeper more and more people tread in all the time yeah. and that's as I want it to be funnily enough some people are incredibly protective of terrain that they're, they've trodden on I'm not at all. I always say that I want this rubbish to be out of the way and I want as many people as possible to be clearing it from our path because I want myself and I want everyone else to actually get on with the stuff we should be getting on with in our lives, whatever that is. We, we should get rid of this bracken and this, uh, this, these sets of mines and bollards that have been thrown in front of us all. Uh, in recent years. So I, I'm always delighted. I mean, the, the madness of crowds, the things I addressed there to do with gender nonsense and and, and and a lot of other things, I've found, you know, that train has been massively populated since I wrote that book in mm-hmm. 2018 or so. And uh, I'm just thrilled, you know, I sort of move on. And and uh, I, I'm hoping the same thing will continue to happen with, with the arguments I made in the war in the West. Certainly some of them I've seen picked up more widely. Certain, certainly uh, one of my self-appointed tasks is to make it easier for other people to tread into the same terrain mm-hmm. and uh, I, I noticed that like I I was doing something the other week with my friend Vivek Ram- Ramaswamy who's running for president uh, uh, at the moment he's actually sort of got a few percents in the polls and um, but he's um, you know he's taken up quite a lot of the arguments I made in that book and I'm just thrilled you know and he said to me I, I you don't mind I use this argument and you make I said I'm absolutely thrilled that you are I, mm-hmm. I don't have a copyright on it and I don't want to you know I'm not the only person arguing <laughs> what I think and uh, so I, I think it's definitely got easier and and that's wonderful because my hope is good I can move on and get on with other things I want to do mm-hmm. yeah you know?
0: mm-hmm a uh, more fractured media space makes it easier for it as well if there's not only three places to go it's yes. lots of control tight controls on those that's true things uh.
2: but I mean I, the reception of the war in the west for instance I mean Joe Scarborough interviewed me for his um, morning show and we had a very constructive you know 15 minute conversation which was which was genuine you know mm-hmm. and uh, the same with Bill Maher um, you know and there were others who, who you know of the people I think of as being available and open for you know, re- real discussion and and tackling difficult issues who, who've shown themselves
0: more than willing to, to do that. And I'm, I'm just always yeah. thrilled when that's the case. Well, that, that is encouraging. With you and a few others bravely going to these third rail places... Uh, it becomes less scary for others to, yeah, to do uh, that that's,
2: and, and and you know and I encourage people you know do it it's much more you'll get much better friends
0: you have a m- much more the, interesting dinner party for you'll sure you have a
2: much better life
0: <laughs> all right so before we you'll, go you'll to get the, to
2: drink manhattans at three in the afternoon th- th- well that's right in fact <laughs> I might have to top mine up here a little bit
0: uh, before we go to the the lightning round I did have one bone to pick with you on mm. the War on the West and I so the listeners know I was listening to or I, I was reading a advanced copy of the War on the West so an uncorrected proof which can oh have typos in it and so i was reading through it and i came across the word maths and sorry yeah Yeah. my gosh and so
2: that's one of the ones i've had to learn not to say
0: yeah oh all right so i i I thought i might have a a, some persuasion to do here i'm glad you're already there because so so listeners know it was math with an s in the context of you know dealing with numbers like he doesn't understand simple maths and i thought oh well there's a typo and then I got to my fifth one of those in a row. And I thought, well, clearly no one's going to make this same mistake five times in a row. <laughs> Something's going on here. So I looked it up and it turns out the British say math. We, we say math where Americans say math. So I've now learned to say
2: math in yeah. the same
0: way as you've learned to say Maudlin. Oh, good. I, I had a whole <laughs> argument ready to go here. Like, my God. I'm not contesting that one. I mean, it's no. very hard. It's physically it's, hard to say it. A poor, I mean, it's yeah. someone with a lisp. It's like hell. diabolical. Absolutely hell. Yeah. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm willing to offer that one up. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. So one of the points of my argument was going to be uh, the percentage of book sales in the English language. North America versus UK. You might, I mean, mm. You're a big star over here between your print and your mm. TV work. You must be selling more books here. In I North sell more America. in the
2: US than anywhere else. Yeah, um, which is great. I mean, it's obviously a
0: market that's five times
2: bigger that than that of the UK. But but I'm, I'm really here because I mean, this is also the centre where everything's happening at yeah. the moment. You know, yeah. the UK and most other English-speaking countries certainly are sort of all downstream from American culture now in a way that is unarguable. Mm. Uh, we know America sneezes and we catch the same cold. Yeah. And um, you know. Uh, in that case you know you ought to be at the center of the problem in my view yeah. it's much more interesting and it's much more likely you can help you know with some of the radiation therapy that's needed
0: you know? <laughs> all right well i feel very very happy about the math maths thing um <laughs> not to not to belabor that too much did you did you correct it in time for the paperback release i think it was ready for the heart for the hard. Yeah. oh so you got so much well i mean the... it must <laughs> be my copy
2: editor must have picked it up in the process i'm sure okay good yeah Yeah. otherwise i'm sure i'd have had irate
0: readers letters by now yeah exactly people are not shy about well you must know as well as anyone people are not shy about writing in about objectionable things (laughs) oh my favorite one is is if you
2: get a stinker of a review i mean that doesn't matter so much anymore it used to really matter as you know you know if you got badly reviewed Mm -hmm. because that used to be the main way of selling books was reviews now thank goodness that's not the case but the the funniest one was always if you got a real real stinker of a review and a certain type of friend or usually ex-friend would come out of the woodwork and say i'm so sorry to see that review." (laughs) <laughs> and draw your attention to it yeah exactly Pretend to be well, devastated for you yeah yeah i was loving every second
0: okay so to the lightning round your mm. favorite book as a kid gosh well how old under 14
2: uh i read all of the sort of usual things you read Ina Blyton, hardy boys uh um, just william um c.s lewis narnia books uh the book that completely devastated me and made me into an adult reader—I probably read when I was about eleven—which was *The Lord of the Flies* by William Golding—and mm. that was the book that where I realized I was catapulted into being an adult reader. In that, something happened that I just had. Not, all children's literature relies on the idea that essentially the parents come back. You know, mm-hmm. order is restored, justice occurs and uh adult fiction like the adult world of course is that people disappear and do not return and bad things happen and are not made up for Mm -hmm. and injustice occurs and is not righted and i remember after i read the lord of the flies i was in shock for days i can still remember the feeling absolutely amazed that 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 as everyone who's read the book will know that, that, that this terrible thing happens and then it ends. Yeah, yeah. And then, it, and then, then I, I sort of trace the beginning of adulthood to then.
0: That's funny you say. I, I haven't thought about that book in years, but that was a traumatizing book. Yes. To me. It's really the first traumatizing book that we all read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I read it earlier than I should have done. Yeah, eleven actually. is young for that one. Yeah. I think I was. My I was my elder brother was re-
2: reading it, so I then inevitably read it as soon as possible. Yeah. And uh, but that that's. Yeah, um, it was It was also the first book that gave me the idea that books are dangerous, which is a great discovery, of course, mm. and it's one of the ways in which you become a reader.
0: Yeah. Book or books you're reading now?
2: Well, I just started this Lawrence Krauss book on things that, that we don't know in the scientific realm. Uh, I always have multiple books on the go, so um, I'm also reading Duff Cooper's biography of Talleyrand, which came out many many years ago uh, i wanted to read i'm reading uh, Jay nordlinger's book about the children of dictators which is great fun because they're sort of horrific
0: stories of course and oh, that's quirky. interesting what and, a great angle for a book I, yeah it probably doesn't turn out well for you know stalin's kids well he probably sta- killed half of them
2: well, well of course his son died in the war and um I had a great friend who was a Persian writer who died many years ago now, and uh, she she was famous. She was a famous London and Parisian literary figure called Shushikapi, who I adored, and uh, she she was famous for knowing everybody. And many years ago at dinner at her house, uh, somebody mentioned something about Stalin, and she said, "Ah, yes, I just got a letter from his daughter this morning," and she went and got it. <laughs> and um, yes, yeah, so it, it covers Stalin's daughter and everybody else. But as uh, so I'm reading that, and that's very interesting, and. Uh oh I I'm reading Mike Ignatiev's most recent book. I sort of lost touch with his output some years ago. And um Do you go in
0: sequence of, or are you reading multiple books? No, at time? I
2: te- well I all the time reading multiple books. He's written a very, very beautiful book about the constellations of philosophy, effectively. Um and um I tend to go on recommend I tend to go on recommendations and on things that seize me. And things that seize me happen at certain moments. I think oh my gosh, I have to have that. I have to mm-hmm. read that now. Mm-hmm. And um, who knows what makes it happen. Um, But just certain books, uh, you think, oh, I I need to read that now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. in the mood for that. I I try never to read books as if it was homework, you know.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. How about uh, a book or or several books to recommend to listeners who want to smarten up on history, particularly the kind of history Mm -hmm. books that can put the present day in context, in a useful context? Um, My favorites are... I think histories of
2: revolutions are always really very, very useful. There's a wonderful biography by one of my great heroes, Stefan Zweig. Uh, his, he was a wonderful novelist and short story writer, but also a wonderful historical biographer. And his biography of Marie Antoinette is fantastic and it's like a novel i mean it's unputdownable and uh, that that's a magnificent book i think um actually Stefan Zweig's memoir is the greatest memoir of the 20th century the world of yesterday developed von gestern which he published just before committing suicide in south america during the war in 1943 he fled vienna and his books were burned and everything and uh, anyway His book, The World of Yesterday, is the greatest memoir I can ever recommend. And how the world can really change about your ears. Um, Oh, there's a very good book that came out a couple of years ago by a female author from Britain whose name is escaping me at the moment about Petrograd in 1917, and it's all first-hand accounts of the revolution. That's really interesting. Yeah. and so all of those books, and oh, and my favourite, if for people with short, shorter attention spans than a book can provide, um, C. S. Lewis's sermon given at the University Church in Oxford in October 1940 about how we should view the present day is one of the greatest things to read. Um, I've quoted it quite a lot in recent years, but he he describes. Um, he describes how the situation is not optimal at the moment which Mm -hmm. is a great example of british understatement (laughs) um uh, but he says but the the situation never was optimal Mm -hmm. and he says if if mankind had put off the search for beauty and truth until such a time as the conditions were optimal then the search would never have begun and um, and I think that that is an incredibly important thought for people to have now, which yeah. is d- don't wait for the situation to be optimal before you do whatever it is you should do with your life. Like start it today because the situation will not be optimal ever.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, moving off books for a moment, favorite few recent TV shows to recommend to listeners. Well, I'm one of those who, of course, can't not watch Succession.
2: Yeah. Um, I I love. Docu series in general, uh, actually, that's my main. If a new documentary series drops, I, I'm, I'm always all over it. Um, what else? Uh, I find the Netflix I've run out of. Uh, same thing with Hulu. Got to the got um, to the bottom of Netflix. Yeah, and um, and I don't understand. Maybe you do. Why why is it that the certain things have now been both. A documentary series and also a fictionalized series like the Anna Delvey thing. And the same thing with the the, the, the Theranos woman and the, the, right. the Elizabeth There are Holmes. three or four versions of these th- big it, and things. It, and and the same, some are real
0: and some are like a little yeah, dramatized. And and yeah. the same thing, with, or completely dramatized, the same thing with the guy who did WeWork. Right. Was, or there's there, there the, uh, that crazy lawyer in South Carolina who killed his kid and wife. There are a, a number of things that right. came they, out. They, they, that. And,
2: and it's very strange. You get these things where you have such interest in it that you do a docudrama and also a documentary series. And I think there there must be so many more stories that are worth uh, telling. I don't understand why each time one comes up and it does well, everyone just commissions another one of the same thing. I wish they wouldn't.
0: Uh, Let's see. The best and worst distinctly American thing. Um,
2: Best thing and you might think this is hopelessly naive and an unbelievable expression of my (laughs) honeymoon-like love with America, America. but it isn't, Um, is genuine pleasure in the success of others. Mm. Um, No, not everybody. You don't find that in Britain? No, 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 no. I mean, I've got to be careful for British listeners, but generally um, in Britain in Europe as a whole... uh, um, Success is seen as being a zero-sum thing. And if you have some, you've taken some from me, or you've, just, you've taken some of my chance of it. The pie is seen to be fixed. Yeah. and um, Sort of old-world thinking as opposed to
0: new frontiers exactly. still hanging over us for and, and you know, I hundreds I really of years
2: do later. And I really do find, as I say, a lot of Americans say, ha, that's not my experience. I just urge them to see the alternatives Mm -hmm. Uh, there's definitely you know a certain amount of zero sum thinking in America as well but broadly speaking I I think there's and there's that kind of nice thing you know it's a bit of a cliche but it is true that you know god that that guy's got a great car and I maybe one day I can have that great car as well Mm -hmm. rather than that guy's got a great car he must have taken something from me you know so I love that about America and and my experience is that people are genuinely happy
0: for you if things going well you know Um, that's interesting. I never observed that specifically, but maybe that's because I've grown up around it and sort of take yeah. it to be true. That's a sort of level of of appreciation for other success. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what I do observe and and am more aware of is the sort of comeback story that, you know, when someone has fallen and get back up, mm-hmm. that I, I recognize for yes. sure. Yes.
2: Um, uh, worst thing, uh, I think it's not too flippant uh, the phrase, "Are you are you still working on that? <laughs> I hate that so much. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I don't believe I. I, I'm, I look down on people who think or about or like food too much. I think it's a bad sign. Oh, you mean this in the context of a restaurant yes. as opposed to a book or something? No, no, okay. no it's a restaurant uh, or any dinner, yeah. um, anything to do with food. Are you still working on that? And I want to say, how much more like and unpleasant do you want to make this seem? <laughs> It has, it has hitherto struck me as being quite a nice dish. <laughs> <laughs> Laboring away in a flop yeah. sweat on this oh, you God, know, God damn! I, I guess I'll just have to get back to that salmon again and see if, it's, if I can make another assault on it.
0: <laughs> I really hate it. That's funny. I can't bear that. I'm trying to think if I ever use that expression. I've definitely heard it. I've, I've mm. All right, how about same question for British, The the worst and the best distinctly British thing. Uh, Best thing...
2: Well, okay. let me do the reversal. Worst thing is probably what I just described. Actually, worst thing about Britain is the class system, which um, we always pretend has completely disappeared, has has done a lot, but hasn't completely. And what I mean by that is that it's... The British novelist Zadie Smith once made a very brilliant observation where she said... um, um, the race in America is what class is in Britain. It's the conversation underneath every conversation. Um, but just to stick with the the British version of that, uh, that thing of sort of the moment you open your mouth, you, you reveal a lot about yourself that people think. But an accent people, can put yes. you geographically and they, educationally, educationally in a, in a spot. and. Um, and that there is a sort of there is a resentment around that which I I dislike. I, I find class sort of a tedious thing to talk about, but um, it it can be used and is used by a lot of people in Britain as an as a as a way to excuse resentment and failure and lack of achievement, lack of ambition, a lot of other things. It, it's just a sort of catch-all excuse, I think, and mm-hmm. and and just it's just ugly. I I I don't like it. Um,
0: and going the other way, maybe an, an excuse to dismiss something, you know, from yeah. the upper looking down as opposed to the yes, lower although
2: up. that one is not permissible. Whereas it is permissible the other way. So you can you can say what you like about you know Tory toffs, for instance, you know. Whereas a so-called Tory toff would not survive. If what is said. a Tory toff? Tory toff would be a sort of conservative upper class person. Okay. Um, you, you can say a Tory toff like Boris Johnson, you know, should be hanged. Uh, the idea that Boris Johnson w- would ever or could ever say anything unpleasant about somebody who's working class is, is impossible. They'd be do- They'd be over. They'd be done. There's something there's something about the whole class system which just still causes horrible resentment in Britain and mm-hmm. and, it, and, and all of Western Europe probably right or much of it yeah not not every but much of it and it's subtle in certain places like in the Netherlands it's they pretend they don't have it but it's subtle same thing in France and I mean the British novelist Ian McEwan once said that it was a terribly sad observation he said I think it was Ian said his mo- his mother regarded the English language as a sort of set of traps you know and that when she opened her mouth she would give something away mm. you know and that is true to an extent is that the moment people open their mouths you can make us you can make some judgments about them and Americans do that as well but it's just not as 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 defined so i would say class is the thing i i least like um and the best thing is um, an element of stoicism which I think still exists is definitely dying out but um, but is there and I adore it mm-hmm. um, I, um, I, I I love the mustn't grumble, get on with things mm-hmm. you know shake yourself down and keep going sort of so, so you're a big fan and, of,
0: of Harry and Meghan I'm sure then yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: the exemplars of of of, uh, of 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 the opposite of what yeah. I admire I mean I, I really do I, I think there's much you know there's much to be said for the era of letting things out and of let you know letting emotions out and talking about how you feel and this sort of thing, but not endlessly, right? you know, not endlessly because we've also got to get on with our lives and um, I I like that, and I like that thing of uh, saying a lot with a little, you know um, uh, that affection for instance is is communicated both in the public and in the private spheres in um, in short recognized agreed upon you know ways and then you move on it's sort mm-hmm. of not not endlessly yeah. and uh i so i sort of like that i think and and uh it's it's got a, there's a sort of honor about it i think which is that it's it recognizes that you know everyone can moan but why do it if we are just going to make everyone else's day worse yeah, as well yeah. you know we can all t- tell stories about you that. know
0: it rounds back a little bit to the marcus aurelius
2: uh, yes. meditations Well, I mean, in general, I think that in Britain and in America and in general, we we could do with a a healthy dose of stoicism being taught to Mm -hmm. our young. And uh, we should um, feed them Marcus Aurelius before we feed them (laughs) self-help.
0: Well, last question for Douglas Murray. One piece of good advice for the listeners on any topic.
2: Well, I mean... Let me assume that a listener is young and able to take advice still rather than old and unwilling to. Like Malcolm. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, to him, I would just say, as to a lot of people, actually, just listen. Listen more. I mean, that is a... I do quite often find I wish people were less on... I mean, I've said this literally speaking into a microphone for most of the last hour, but I do think in general people should learn how to listen a bit better, you know. Um... But with young people, I think, I think, actually, slightly what I said earlier about, you know, getting on with things now and trying not to allow things to get in your way and waiting for the right situation to emerge and all that sort of thing. But the other is, is, is actually, I think, um, I think it's very, very important that people do in life what they are passionate about but also good at, you know, and that, that, that people aim towards it and, and, have an idea of of life and try to, and just run towards it. And the worst that'll happen is that you'll miss, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the best that'll happen is you get there. Um, but for that, I think you have to have an idea of what, what, to use a phrase you don't hear much these days, what a life well lived is, you know. It's something I think about a lot. And um, I, th- I think that people should work, they should think on that at an early stage. And, and 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 try to make sure, as I've tried to make sure in my life, that, that that you end up living the life you you meant to live. Yeah. And you know, there's a very sad line in Philip Larkin, the poet, the, the the poet laureate of sadness. Uh, but uh, he he one of his poems, I think, it's afternoons, refers to a, a couple who obviously a sort of. Um, not very well off married, long married couple somewhere in middle England he refers to the, pho- the photograph album labelled our wedding on the shelf and he says he says something is pushing them to the edge of their own lives and I've always found that an incredibly mm. haunting line so I would say don't don't be pushed to the edge of your own life you know
0: yeah and maybe the best that happens is you end up somewhere even better than what you were aiming for you know what, who be, knows uh, what you discover? just absolutely. you get off your butt at least
2: absolutely yeah and and don't and don't blame other people and don't find excuses and things like that
0: no, nobody's got time yeah. that's important I, that message needs to be out there there more and more well douglas what a pleasure thank you so much for coming in such a pleasure for me thank you and thank you for getting me slightly tipsy in the early afternoon <laughs> 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 the, the feeling is mutual <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.